Hi guys, my name's Beck. if I haven't met you yet. And the Bible reading tonight is from John 5, verse 19 to 29. Please join me as I pray before we read. Dear Lord, thank you for the privilege it is that we get to read your word. And I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts now as we read it to help us understand it and let it change our lives. Amen. Starting at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Thanks, Beck. Someone somewhere once said that the Bible is like home and away. Oh, (laughs) that's exactly right. That's what I thought too. That is, it's actually one big story made up of lots and lots and lots of different episodes. But it's really one big story, right? With 66 episodes, 39 episodes in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. But it's one big story that revolves around or climaxes in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one book that especially helps us understand how it's one big story is called God's Big Picture by a man man named Vaughan Roberts. Uh, If you've not read this book, uh, can I commend it to you to see how it is that this is one big story in the Bible. And we've been doing that, for example, on the first night when we looked at uh, covenant and how it is that's revealed through that one story. But someone else once said that the Bible is also like the botanical gardens. That is to say, like in the botanical gardens, you have sections of different 
flowers, there's roses, and there's not roses and other things, right? So there's all sorts of different flowers and trees and so on. And that is the idea of, well, this God's big picture is what we call biblical theology, the one story, the unfolding revelation of God that climaxes in the personal work of Jesus. That's more like the, yeah, the, the one big story, the, the one story with lots of episodes. The Botanical Gardens idea is more like this book called Knowing God, right? So, yeah, it's also a valuable book. That's right. And this book is like the one section in the Botanical Gardens, namely the doctrine of God. Right? And if there's one book on God that is worth getting, it is this book. Each essay is just packed with a theology, and it's a wonderful read. And it's one of those books that you need to read a chapter at a time and then just digest it after a little while because it's just full of wonderful, wonderful teaching. One other section of those Botanical Gardens is prayer. And there's a guy named Don Carson who's written a book called Praying with Paul, in which he looks at all the prayers of Paul in the New Testament and shares with us what we learn about prayer. He gave these talks, actually, firstly, as talks at the uh, mission uh, school called the uh, CMS Summer School some years ago. And they really were amazing talks, and they were converted into a book. Very helpful there on the bookstore. Uh, can I say that uh, another thing that I'd love to promote is the fact that we uh, here have the gifts of radio voices. Um, Jeanette was just identifying the fact that those of us who have been making announcements have these amazing voices, don't they? Like Dan Pearson, radio voice. You know, Luke Williamson, radio voice. Max Williamson, radio singing. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I, I've never had a better book promotion than that. Uh, so thank you, Max. I, I wish I recorded it and uh, passed it on to the publishers because they might make a new out of that sometime. <laughs> Let's pray as we come to the Word of God. We thank you, dear Father, for the incredible privilege it is to be able to hear your voice so freely in this country, unlike in other places that we just heard of from Seth and Kate. Now, Father, we pray that we'll never take this privilege for granted and that we will continue to think your thoughts after you now as we hear your voice in Scripture and as I seek to teach it. Please help me to teach a better word than what I've prepared. And we pray, Father, that you'll pierce our hearts so that we will grow to know and love you more in the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this for his sake. Amen. His name is Tommy, or Tim, rather, Tebow. Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow was a quarterback for the Denver Broncos, which is a gridiron team in the United States of America. He's a Christian man. He's a man who so loves our Lord Jesus that with the football eye paint they have in these games, he decided to have the words John 3.16 on his eye paint so that if he did something incredible, the world would see that John 3.16 was on his cheeks. In one particular game, he threw a total of 316 yards in passes. The average length of his passes for that particular game happened to be 31.6 yards. Spooky, yeah? 
Small wonder that the day after this game, John 3.16 became the number one search item on Google in America. Incredible, isn't it? God willing, those who searched it came to realize that it referred to what is probably the best known verse in the Bible. Together, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What do you think, arguably, is the most important word in that verse? I say arguably because it's arguable. But you argue with each other for one minute. What is arguably the most important word in that verse? Go. All right, there's your minute. Okay, let's go for this side first. Who would like to put forward an argument? Yes, James. Eternal. Why eternal? Because, sorry, I missed that. Yeah, it's forever. Yeah, yeah, so eternal. Yep, okay. Any other ideas? Yep. So, because... Yeah, the depth that he loved us. The word so. Thank you. Any over here? Yeah. Only. Only. Because? It shows the magnitude of the sacrifice of his son. Yeah, the magnitude of the sacrifice of his son. Yes. Love. Love. Because? Yeah, shows God's character. Finally, Ryan, old president. Sorry? God. Because it's God doing it. Yeah, okay. Yep. So we, we could argue these things, couldn't we? Uh now, uh, I'm going to go for the word so as well, just for a moment. But, but how do we use the word so? It shows the magnitude, doesn't it? So people often translate it, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. But is that what the word so means in the context? So much, showing the depth of it all. This sermon tonight is all about so. We're just going to talk about so the whole time. So what? Because it will under, I hope it will help us understand something of the depths, but it actually means much more than God loved the world so much. Because the word so there actually means in this way. Right? God so loved the world. That is, in this way, God loved the world. Now, that does imply so much, but implies more than that, I suggest to you. Because it tells us a lot about God, firstly, in this way. Because the God who so loved the world is the God that we've been learning about the last few nights. 
the one who is faithful to his covenant promises. He kept his promises to save his people against all the odds. He kept his promises to judge his enemies. And in keeping his promises, he also expressed his steadfast love, his tender-hearted love towards his people. And we saw him express his righteousness, his moral and legal standards as creator and judge through Habakkuk and, the Ro- and Romans last night. And we saw his righteousness supremely displayed at the cross of Christ. But I want to suggest to you, there is so much more to God who so loved the world. However big we think our view of God is, can I suggest to you, it is still too small. I can say that without a shred of doubt in my head. Your view of God is too small. As my view of God is too small. Well, what, we, what do we learn from John 3.16? Firstly, is that God, the God who so loved the world, is not alone. He sent his Son. Although there is one true God, he is not lonely. He has been with his Son and with his Spirit for all eternity in other-person relationship. He has never, ever been lonely, contrary to Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I'm sorry if I ruined the plot for you. No, I'm not sorry at all. It's pathetic, really. God is not lonely. He relates within himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And clearly in John 3.16, the God who so, so loved the world refers to God the Father. And what can we learn about God the Father firstly? Well, we had it in our reading in John chapter 5. Let's turn now to John chapter 5. And we'll be spending most of our time in this one text you'll be glad to know tonight. John 5. In the context of John chapter 5, Jesus purposely heals a man who was an invalid for 38 years, right? For 38 years, 38 years of his entire life, he'd never been able to walk. But Jesus chooses to heal this man on the Sabbath day, the day when Israel were meant to rest. Why on the Sabbath? Because he knew it would offend the Jews who said that you should rest on the Sabbath. He could have just waited one more day. After all, the guy had been an invalid for 38 years. He could have just waited one more day. No, but he chose to to heal on the Sabbath day. Remember, this guy could have been healed any time. But this day, why? Because Jesus wanted to create an opportunity to explain his relationship with his father. That's why. And so if you go to verse 18 of chapter 5, verse 18... We read, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, that is Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, is Jesus here claiming to be another God like the Greek gods? Not at all. Not at all. Look what he says in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, 
but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So what do we learn about God the Father, firstly? That the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son. And how does the Father love the Son? Where he reveals all that he is doing to his Son. He's like a carpenter showing his son how to use and care for his tools, how to craft the wood, how to assemble it with great care. All the trade secrets are passed on from father to son. Here is love expressed. It is to make yourself vulnerable to another by revealing everything to another, namely the father revealing everything to the son. I don't know whether you've had a father reveal things to you. Maybe he taught you how to drive or something like that. My father taught me not only how to drive, but how to change a tire. Isn't that cool? So I knew that you have to jack up a car to change a tire, but you don't jack it up all the way, do you, those of you who change a tire? You've got to jack it up only to the point where the tire's still touching the road, because otherwise, if you start unbolting the nuts at that point, the tire's just going to keep on you know, uh, shifting. So you've got to actually keep it tight there, and then, then you've got to bolt the nut, or unbolt the nuts that are on the other side of each other, etc., and so I learned that all from my father. It's not something out of a, a book. I just learned it from him. He just taught me this stuff. It's cool. In fact, I got to use it in Africa recently. I happened to be on a safari with my dear wife. We saw some lions. Roar. <laughs> One of those lions decided to come and look at what we were doing because the car had to get out of the way and go into this patch of grass. And then we had a puncture. Psst just there and, and the lion got curious and so he came up to look at what we were doing so the car a guy actually started to go out and, and drove down the hill with a punctured tyre all the way and therefore really damaging the rim in the process but we had to find somewhere to actually change the tyre so we got down there and then someone asked is it possible for the lion to come down and look at us he said yep and so everybody decided to stay in the car right so this poor guy had to go and jack up the car with everybody still in the car Except for me <laughs> and my dear wife, who, <laughs> who just protested that I didn't mention her name in the process as well. But we were there, both out of the car, and we both helped unbolt the nuts, and we knew something about how to jack up the car. You see, everything my father taught me, I even put into training in that instance, even though I could have been killed and by a lion, and, and all you have to do is run faster than the person behind you in order to get away from the line, but that's why my wife is a much faster runner than I am. Right? But everybody else was on the truck, right, as they could see what it is. So the skills I learned from my father, for which I'm very grateful. God the Father teaches his son, reveals his son everything. Jesus is so uniquely the son of God that the father shows him all that he does out of sheer love. And also, the father is going to reveal even greater works to his son. You see there in verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20? For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will, sh will he show him, so that you may marvel. See, what the father wants more than anything else is for his people to marvel at his son. To marvel at his son. 
So the way to honour the Father is to honour the Son. Verse 21. For the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Oh, he's given all authority to the Son to judge because he wants the Son to be honoured by his people. This is so different to the way the legendary Greek gods relate to one another, isn't it? In the world of Zeus or in the world of Hinduism, gods give birth to other gods and goddesses or demigods and, and those children of the gods why well, they want their own powers, they want their own plans, and they also want to knock off their other parent gods in the process. Why, well, it's a kind of a subplot of the Avengers, isn't it? Where Thanos gets all the power rings or whatever it is, and then, but he's got two daughters who hate his guts as well in the process, and he kills them off somewhere or other. I haven't seen the end game, so I have no idea what I'm talking about at the moment of time. But, but it's that idea, isn't it? That is, they don't get on with each other. It's so different. Not so with the true God of heaven and earth. God the Father wants everyone to honour his Son. He loves his Son. It is in this context that we're in a place to understand verse 19 again. Come back to verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Although Jesus is distinct from his father, although Jesus is so loved by his father, although Jesus is the one that the father wants everyone to marvel at, Jesus is the one who truly reveals the father. His actions are flush with the father's actions. We can trust what he says concerning the father. There won't be any surprises when we get to heaven. You know, we won't get to heaven and say, oh, I didn't know you were meant to be like this. Now, Jesus has revealed everything we need to know about the Father in terms of his character. If the Son only acted in line with his Father sometimes and did his own thing at another time, he would be a rival God. But he's not a rival God because he only does what his Father shows him. So the way to get to know the Father is to know the Son. Small wonder Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So the God who so loved the world firstly loves his son by showing him all that he does. And he longs for everyone to marvel at his son. That's what we learn about God the Father in John chapter 5. Secondly, what do we learn about God's only son in this text? What do we learn about his only son? Come down to verse 26 now. I'll pick it up at verse 25. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. 
And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Note there are two things that we learn about the Son here. Firstly, that the Father gives to his Son life in himself, verse 26. And secondly, the Father gives to his Son authority to judge. Let's look at these in turn. What does it mean when he says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. For the Father to have life in himself means that no one else gives him life. He has life in himself. It's not granted to him from someone else. He has self-existence. He was not created. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the eternal God. He is the great I am. Clearly, this is only something that God possesses. Never had a beginning. Never will have an end. But this is not just the possession of God the Father. Because he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. That is, Jesus enjoys this self-existence too. Jesus has life in himself. Jesus too is self-existent. He too was not created. He too has no beginning. He too has no end. Remember last night, the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets prophesying of the, the, the sufferings and the glories of Christ to come. But Jesus had not become a man at that point in time. But Jesus was eternally existing with the Father and the Spirit before he became a human. But how does this work? If the Father has self-existence and the Son has self-existence, how do they relate in terms of their self-existence? Look at it again in verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. If self-existence has no beginning, then it must be something that the Father gives to the Son eternally. How do you give self-existence to someone who has no beginning or no end? See, here is the window into the eternal relationship that God the Father has with God the Son. The eternal granting of self-existence. The eternal granting of life in himself. If you were at the national training event last year, you might want to Google this talk by Kevin DeYoung, where he spoke from John chapter 1, first two talks, and he spent a lot of time unpacking this phrase, eternal generation, eternal generation. That's what's being on, referred to here. Eternal generation refers to this, that is, it is the never beginning and never ending act whereby God the Father communicates the divine essence to God the Son. The never beginning and never ending act whereby God the Father 
communicates his divine essence to God the Son. Do you get that? Is your brain starting to hurt? That's what we're talking about here in terms of your view of God is too small because that's what he's referring to here. But secondly, what else do we learn about the Son? As if that's not enough. Remember verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. When Jesus returns, he is the one who will judge. God the Father has given him this authority to judge ISIS and Boko Haram and the Congo, the corrupt officials in power there and pedophiles and drug smugglers and people smugglers and sex traffickers and greedy people, which includes every Australian and everyone in New South Wales and everyone in Nowra and everyone in Watersley. Indeed, anyone who is too proud to acknowledge him as Lord, Jesus will judge. And why has God given Jesus this authority? Why has God the Father given it to him? Because he wants everyone to honor him. He wants everyone to marvel at him. But does that mean that all the glory goes to the Son and not the Father? No. Do you remember Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11? Just, just jot down the reference. But I'm sure you know it as I say it. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Finish it with me. To the glory of God the Father. So... If you confess Jesus is Lord, it will be to the glory of God the Father. Everything you do to marvel at the Son will have the Father marveled at. To honor the Son is to honor the Father. To glorify the Son is to glorify the Father. So you can never, ever be too Jesus-centric. If anyone says to you, oh, you just talk about Jesus all the time. Well, that's great. Praise God. If you talk about Jesus all the time, then you're always bringing glory to the Father. You can never be too Jesus-centric. To glorify the Son is to glorify the Father. And yet, please also note that the relationship between the Father and the Son is, is not symmetrical. It's asymmetrical. The Father loves the Son as he initiates, as he sends, as he commands, as he reveals to the Son. Whereas the Son loves the Father as he submits to the Father, as he obeys the Father, as he receives from the Father, as he does what his Father shows him. Turn with me now to John 14, John chapter 14 and verse 31, just to show you what Jesus says of how he loves his Father. John 14, very last verse of John chapter 14, in verse 31, Jesus says, John 14, verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Do you see? How does Jesus love the Father? 
by doing what his father commands, by obeying his father. Do you see the other person relationship that is going on here? And it's just so beautiful. Now, why is all this so important? Because the God who so loved the world gave his only son. And this son has life in himself. And he only does what his father does in perfect willing obedience that gives him the status of Lord and Judge. To understand the cross of Christ, we must understand the nature of the Trinity. We must understand that he is one God in three persons. And you know, most of our Muslim friends have been taught from a very young age that this is a lie. And they've been taught from a very young age to try and help us see how this just doesn't work and doesn't make sense. And they've been taught from a very young age what we call apologetics to actually use against Christian people to debunk the Trinity. But unless we understand the Trinity, we cannot understand the cross of Christ. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible. But again, it was very helpful when Kevin DeYoung just mentioned this very simple way of remembering what the Trinity is. There, there are seven things, seven things to remember why it is that we believe in the Trinity. Firstly, there is one God. And we know that the Father is God. The Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. You can learn all those things from the Bible. Right? There's one God, Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God. But we can also know that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. All those things you can prove from the Scriptures. And you can only understand those seven things if you bring them or integrate them into the one concept that we call the Trinity. You got that? One God, Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God, Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. It's very easy to remember, isn't it? All those things are there in the Scriptures. And in the next little while, I just want to go through a bit of church history with you because it's so important. Because you need to understand that if this is the truth, then I need to teach you what is not the truth. Because you can only understand the truth clearly if you understand what it is not. In the first few centuries after Jesus ascended to heaven, the early church had great debates concerning these very doctrines of the Trinity and the person of Jesus. Regarding the Trinity, some claimed that because there is only one God, he couldn't be three distinctive persons. And so there was one group particularly who claimed that God is a single person who first manifested in the mode of the Father in the Old Testament and then in the mode of the Son in the New Testament and in the mode of the Holy Spirit as well after Jesus ascended into heaven. That is, these modes can't manifest at the same time. It's just one person. It's kind of like water. It's either ice or liquid or vapor. But it can't be all in existence at the same time. I know it kind of is, but you get the flow, right? The same actual H2O stuff. It's either ice or water 
or steam. And that's how people try to describe the Trinity. And you say the Trinity is like that. But every time you use the word the Trinity is like, you've got to stop there because you're going to be wrong. Straight away, you're going to be wrong. So some people actually say, oh, it's like a three-leaf clover. But that's not right either because they're three separate things but not the one thing. My dear wife heard that someone described it like a happy meal. So God is the burger and Jesus is the fries and the Holy Spirit is the toy or something like that, you know, as if that's, that's how it works. But you, 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 the moment you start illustrating the Trinity, you've already gone down the wrong track. It's wrong. Don't even try to illustrate the Trinity. Modalism can't be right. It makes a mockery of the passive we just looked at in John 5 because clearly there is one God, but clearly they are three distinct persons at one at the same time. Now that's one heresy regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. But regarding the person of Jesus himself, there were particular debates as well. See, there was one idea known as docetism. I think it's in your books. Docetism, which actually teaches that Jesus was only God and that he appeared as a man. So it's a kind of modalistic thing, but it has to do with the person of Jesus alone. That is, he was never really human, but that he appeared as a human. That's docetism. Now, if that were the case, that would mean that Jesus was never a genuine substitute for humanity because he wasn't a real human. Nor was he a genuine representative for humanity when he died on the cross because he was never truly human. So it would never work. It would not be an effective sacrifice if he only appeared to be human and he wasn't human. Do you see? That's docetism. On the other hand, others suggested that he was truly human, but he wasn't God. He was only human. And God adopted this human to be his son to go to the cross. That's known as adoptionism. right? Adoptionism. Now just ponder that one for a moment. How does this undermine the cross of Christ if he's only human and not God? I'm going to give you another minute now to talk with the person next to you. How does this undermine the cross if he's only human and not God? One minute. Okay, let's start over here this time. How does it undermine the cross if he's only human? Any thoughts on this side? Yeah. Yep. Yep, okay, so they're sinful, so they can't actually pay for the price of another if they're sinful. What if they're a perfect human and not, not sinful, but only human? 
Say Adam before the fall. Would that work? Dave? Right, okay, so it wouldn't fulfill the prophecies. Okay, yep. Alex? Sorry, from the seminars, um, we were looking at if outside of God's character to pick someone other than God, he would pick a rando human or he could pick one of us because that's unloving to that random human if they are not willingly choosing to die on the cross. Yeah, 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 okay. Did you say rando human at the beginning? A rando human. Mm, that sounds, I thought it was, you know, Rambo kind of human or something like that. Rando human. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Took me a while to work that out, I'm sure. So, Psalm 49. Turn with me to Psalm 49. Did you look at this in your seminar? Yes. Great. Well, look at it again. Psalm 49, verse 7. Psalm 49, verse 7. Truly, no man can ransom another. Psalm 49, verse 7. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Right? A human cannot be used to ransom for another. And even if he was a perfect human, just think about that. Even if he was a perfect human, not a rando human, but a perfect human... Uh, like Adam before the fall kind of human, even he could only ransom for one other life, but not for humanity. It's kind of one for one, isn't it? So it doesn't work that way. Even worse, if Jesus was only fully human and not God, his death would be immoral, wouldn't it? Did you guys look at Proverbs 17 in your seminar? Yes? Good on you, because we're going to look at it again. Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17. Verse 15. Proverbs 17, verse 15. Proverbs 17, verse 15. So we're going to dig a little deeper here. Proverbs 17, verse 15. Chapter 17, Proverbs, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the righteous are both like an abomination to the Lord. To justify the wicked, condemn the righteous, they're both abhorrent to God. Now, if Jesus was only an innocent man, not God, then God would be condemning an innocent third party instead of a guilty second party, wouldn't he? That would be like if... If Luke punched me and then I punished Crosby instead of Luke in his place, that would be wickedness, wouldn't it? Some of you would think, no, that's right. But no, <laughs> that's not right at all. Right. It is the guilty who need to be punished, not the innocent. It's an abomination to punish the innocent. You do not justify the wicked. You don't make right the wicked. If Jesus was only an innocent human being, then God would be condemning an innocent third party instead of the guilty second party. If Jesus is only human, 
even a perfect human, the cross of Christ would be a wicked act. Some people call this divine child abuse. Have you heard that expression before? So people actually say this is immoral. How can you have Jesus die because he is an innocent third party? And this idea permeates bad illustrations. Have you ever heard this illustration where a railroad operator learns that the bridge is out? You've heard this one before? No? Some of you have. Let me repeat it for those of you who haven't heard it. So a railroad operator learns that the bridge is out, and so he has to switch tracks for a train that's coming onto the bridge so that you can divert it away from the bridge. And so he diverts the train in that direction by you know, changing the rails so that it can go to the other line. But then he discovers that his child is on that second line. So what does he do? Does he actually make the hundreds die by letting them go across the bridge? Or does he divert it so that the train will survive with the hundreds of passengers, but his son will be killed in the process? Now, that sounds all emotional and amazing. And wow, how wonderful the father is by sacrificing his son. But that's, that's divine child abuse, isn't it? Because it means that the son is so separate from the father that it's an innocent third party who is actually being killed in the place of a guilty second party. Is that what God does when he so loved the world? Do you see? One of the early church councils that met to determine the biblical truth that we hold today was formulated in what was called the Council of Nicaea. In 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. That's where we get the Nicene Creed that we say from time to time. It determined that Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. And he has to be fully God and fully man at one and the same time for the cross of Christ to be morally righteous and effective. It's adequate because Jesus is fully God and the infinite worth of his person really can pay for the sins of all humanity. And it's morally righteous because Jesus is fully human. Therefore, he's a genuine representative, a genuine substitute. He can die in our place. So when Jesus is punished, he is not an innocent third party, but he is the God man, the one who bears our genuine guilt upon himself because he is the one who is, well, violated. Yet he is the one, therefore, who can forgive. And therefore, he is the one in whom through his son can take upon himself the judgment of the world. It only works if Jesus is fully human and fully God and perfectly human and perfectly God. But that's, that's mind-blowing, isn't it? The person of Jesus being fully God and fully human. So what does that mean when Jesus slept and Jesus got tired when Jesus went to the toilet was that the divine essence doing that or was that the divine son doing that was it the human doing that it's just, it's just my brain hurts but isn't that wonderful it only works if Jesus is fully God and fully man you know ironically at this council of Nicaea all but two of the 300 bishops signed it. Most of them 
however, actually did not believe that Jesus was fully God, even though they signed the statement that Jesus was fully God and fully human. They signed that statement out of political ambition to please the emperor, actually, even though they didn't believe it. And there were two men at that council who were not bishops who signed it. One of them was a man named Athanasius who held on to that truth, and he was one of the few, and I'll come back to him. But the other guy was a man named Arius, A-R-I-U-S. No, he is not a god. That's actually his name, Arius. Arius was convinced that the New Testament regarded Jesus as a particularly splendid human being, but not God. He was the first among all of God's creatures, as he understood it. He was a created demigod. So in other words, he had a beginning. It's like that movie Moana, where the demigod Maui comes out. You know, you're welcome, that, that guy. He's the demigod, right? He's the, the first among equals after, but he, he's half God. He's like Thor. He has a beginning. That's how Arius actually understood Jesus to be. And in case you're wondering, well, it's all history. What's it got to do with me? That's exactly what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They're Arians. They don't believe that Jesus is fully God. They believe that Jesus had a beginning, which is very different to the Bible, isn't it? And it's very important to know that. And Arius actually spread his heresies through writing music. Did you know that? Pub jingles, really, really catchy, catchy music, which is why it's so important what you sing when you actually sing in church. Do you think about the words that you sing? Do the words always speak about Jesus as if he's your boyfriend? No, you're wonderful, you're great, I just want to be with you, I just want to be with you. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I want to be with you. You're wonderful. You're great. I love you. I love you. I love you. Hallelujah. Do you know those kinds of songs? Is that really saying much about Jesus? Do you know there's more hallelujahs in one song than there is in the entire New Testament? Do you know how many hallelujahs there are in the New Testament? Those of you who know the answer because I've told you, you know, from, you're not allowed to say. Those of you who don't know, have a guess. How many hallelujahs are there in the New Testament? Anybody shout out a number. Seven. Anybody else? Eighteen. Anybody else? Ten. Anybody else? Zero. Zero is the closest. You know, it, it, it's only four. It's only four. And they're all in one chapter of the New Testament. It's Revelation 19. Don't look it up now. Just trust me. Just trust me. No, no, no. Check it out for yourself. But you see... We sing songs that are like that, and Arius wrote songs like that, and they were just carried away because it was just good music. You know, Jesus is not God, Jesus is not God. You know, in, in pubs, jingles that are there, and just passed it on and passed it on. Everybody's kept on singing, Jesus is not God, or something like that. You've got to think about what you sing. In order to feel after God, you've got to think hard. So think about what you're singing, won't you? Think about what it is that's being taught to you. Don't just accept it because it sounds good. Uh, what you watch on YouTube, whoever you listen to, whatever their names, I don't care what their names are. It doesn't matter if they're whatever. I just heard some names recently. Todd someone or John someone or this someone or Anna someone. I don't care what the name is. 
Just keep, what are they saying? Is it actually matching what the Bible's saying? Just because they're on YouTube and they have lots and lots of hits doesn't mean that they're good. Have your Bible open. Are they actually saying what the Bible says? Athanasius was a thinker. Athanasius was over 40 years younger than Arius. And for his efforts against the tsunami of opinion that Jesus was not fully God, Athanasius was driven out of his church five times by the power of the Roman Empire. 17 of his 45 years as bishop were spent in exile. But it was during these times in exile that he hammered out his doctrine of Jesus' full divinity and full humanity. At one point he said, If the world is against Athanasius, then Athanasius is against the world. He fought for this doctrine. He was exiled for this doctrine. Many people died for this doctrine. Don't ever take it for granted. In fact, at one of the councils, everything hanged off two letters. It was whether Jesus is fully God or Jesus is like God. And they were, they were debating and it all hung off two Greek letters. What in grammar, you call a diphthong, right? Two letters. It's homoousios or homoousios. Homo is same, right? So homo sapiens, same being, right? The homo is like. So someone once said, our whole salvation depended on a diphthong. Precision in theology actually matters. Really, really, really matters. You'll hear sometimes, and I heard it at a recent conference, doctrine divides, Jesus unites. But what you believe about Jesus is doctrine. That's why we're spending a whole week wrapped in Scripture. Right? That's why we want you to work it out for yourself. That's why you're doing the manuscript discoveries for yourself. We don't want to give you the answers. We want you to work it out for yourself. That's why, as I teach the Bible, we have an opportunity for Q&A so you can question whether what I'm saying is true or not. That's why I'm insisting that you actually look at the text for yourself and not just listen and listen and listen. And that's why I'm not trying to make YouTube clips all the time so that you can just go, whoa, wow, gee, listen to this person. Wow, people actually sing about his books, you know, or something like that. It's just unbelievable. This guy is so majestic that people can sing about it. You know, it's incredible. No, no, whoever it is, whatever the name is, and I know John Piper won't mind me saying that, even if it's John Piper, stick to the word, won't you? You can actually disagree with John Piper. <gasps> you can. Well, eventually the church arrived at another defining council at the Council of Chalcedon to actually note that Jesus is one person who is both fully God and fully human. And that's why in the Nicene Creed today, where it affirmed Everything that he is the line, true God from true God, begotten. You know the next phrase? Not made. Not made. He's begotten, not made. Every time you say a yes, you've got to say what the no is. If he's begotten, it means he's not made. He's self-existent, therefore he's not made. Whenever you teach a truth, you've got to teach what the untruth is that is implied in the truth. Otherwise, you will never remember the truth. 
The clarity of the truth only becomes clearer when you work out what the untruth is that is implied from this truth. So when you teach young children what the gospel is, you need to teach them what the gospel is not. And people don't like that. But I tell you, if you don't do that, within a generation, the church will lose its way. A movement will lose its way. People suffered and died for these truths. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Well, how does the son save us from perishing? Well, all we've seen this week so far, he saves us by his death that we deserve, the death that we deserve as our representative, as our substitute. He takes our punishment for us. And it was just, it was righteous because he is the one person who is fully God and fully man, and he lived his life in full alignment with his father's moral and legal standards as creator and judge. And his death as such was both adequate and morally right. But all this can sound so mechanical, can't it? Yeah, there are these deep truths, and it's right that we do that. I've argued for it. But just finally, turn with me to the actual account where we see it in the very being of Jesus in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Where Jesus is in the garden on the Mount of Olives, known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And in verse 39 of Luke 22, we read of Jesus... After the Lord's Supper. In verse 39, And he came out and went, as was his custom. Note, Jesus continually went to the Garden of Gethsemane. This was not just a one-off thing. He went there regularly. Right? It was his custom to go there, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. So this was just his usual custom. But this time, something was different. Verse 40, And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Please note here, for the first time in the account, we see Jesus beside himself. He's deeply troubled. He's in emotional agony. His sorrow is killing him. So much so that Luke says his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Verse 44. It's like blood. For here we come to sacred ground. For what we're about to hear, uh, what we have heard here is the private prayer of Jesus, a prayer prayed when Jesus is lying with his face to the ground in the face of lethal sorrow that will reveal his 
heart, the very heart of God. Because it's the prayer of the perfect son to his perfect father. Jesus prays to his own loving heavenly father. No relationship in the universe has been as intimate as the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They have been in perfect unity for the whole of eternity where there is no beginning and no end. And Jesus' request here to his Father is to take this cup from me. What is this cup? I think most of you know, if you look up references like Psalm 75... Like Psalm 75, verses 7 to 8, that the cup is a metaphor for the just anger of God that is poured out on the wicked. The just anger of God poured out on the wicked. That's the cup. And Jesus asked his father to take this cup from him, take his anger away from him. For Jesus, Jesus knew that he was never wicked, he never deserved the wrath of his father. He was perfect. He was the perfect son. He knew he was the perfect son. His father knew he was the perfect son. And furthermore, he knew that what it meant to face the wrath of God the Father was to take this cup. It was punishment beyond compare. It was the wrath of his father that would drive you and me to hell. Father, take this cup from me, he prays. Three times he prays it. But greater than his desire for self-protection, greater than his desire for self-preservation was his desire to do his Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done. Please note here that what Jesus treasures is his Father's will. If you're like me, my instinctive thought is that Jesus went to the cross for me, for you. But do you know, Jesus went to the cross for his Father's sake, primarily, first and foremost. Oh yes, it was for us. But remember how he loves the Father? By obeying his Father. But I just want to think that Jesus treasures me because he died for me. But he treasured his Father's will. Please note the primary reason he went to the cross is not my will, but yours be done. His primary reason for going to the cross was to lovingly obey his father. So God-centered. Except if you're like me, we just instinctively think it's all about me. What about me? Please note the other enormous implication here for us. It must mean that there is no other way to be saved, is there? If there was another way, don't you think that the Heavenly Father would have provided it? Knowing how much he loves his son, there is no other way to be saved outside of Jesus taking the punishment for us. Because if there was another way, he would have provided it, but he didn't. 
There is no other way to be saved outside of Jesus. So how are the unreached people groups going to hear how to be saved? We heard about Auntie Carla with her prayer wheel. Does she know about Jesus? How can we possibly think that we can be saved by being good or helping people or being a good, honest, upright citizen in society or by attending church or taking communion or being baptised or being religious? That would make it our efforts, wouldn't it? It also implies that no other religion can save us. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, there is no other way. This is what this text is saying. But of course the disciples, they couldn't understand this. They just had a full meal and just fall asleep. The best things in life are experienced in relationship, aren't they? The closer the relationship, the richer the potential of the experience. That's why I'm loving telling the stories about our lion experience. You know, Jeanette and I just love it, but we love it so much that we love the relationship of it, and it was great to enjoy it together. But when you talk to us, we need to show you the photos, right? I mean, why do you take photos? You've there. You, you've got. You've got your own experience. Why do you take the photos? Because you want to share it with other people, don't you? That's why you take photos. The best things in life are experienced in relationship. It doesn't matter how good the experience is, it's always better to share it with someone. The worst things in life are the lack of relationship. Strained relationships. When the boy of your dream says no, or the girl of your dream says no, that, that hurts, doesn't it? Or when there's a breakup, that really hurts. Or when there's death, you, you can't relate to someone who is dead. No relationship in the universe is as close as the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. No relationship. And yet, somehow, something happened, didn't it? When God the Father poured out his wrath on God the Son for you and me, something happened to the Godhead where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you deserted me? Do you get John 3.16 now? For God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way. Yes, it does mean so much, but it means so much more than so much, doesn't it? He gave his only son, the, the son who he gives self-existence to, the son that he wants the world to marvel at, the son who he wants you and I to honour, 
That's what this whole talk has been about. The standard for all other love relationships is the love between the father and the son. So when we read God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the object of God's love is the world. But the standard that tells us just how great that love is, is his prior love for his son. What makes his love for the world so incredible is that he gave his beloved son, whom he loved for all eternity. God so loved the world. The fundamental reality in heaven and earth is the love of God the Father for God the Son. If you want to know what the purpose of life is, is that the Father loves the Son. If you look at creation and you think, wow, that's amazing. What are you supposed to think? God made that for the Son. The reason why you and I and everything else exists is because God loves his son and wants others to know his son, to love and glorify his son. And this reality, more than anything else, is the reason for our creation and our salvation. This is the thing that most defines our past, our present, and our future, that God loves the son. It's all about the son. It is the overflow of God's intra-Trinitarian love that transforms everything. And when we get how God so loved the world, then and only then can we see how the cross of Christ transforms every sphere of life, every relationship imaginable, everything that we do. And so in closing, let me ask you, what will that look like for you? Let me tell you what it was like for me. My first mid-year conference, when I glimpsed something of what I've just shared, just a glimmer of what I just shared, the verse that was burned into my skull was 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, which says this, and I've memorized it because that was the verse that transformed my life. For Christ's love that we've just heard about compels us Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Do you get that? Christ's love compels us. That means that I'm no longer to live for Richard anymore. I'm to live for Jesus. And you are no longer to live for yourself anymore. You are to live for Jesus. You sign a blank check when you become a Christian. Your life is no longer yours. It's for Christ. So how will you live your life for Christ? Everything we do is for Christ. Our study, our relationships, our marriage, our sex within marriage, our work, our everything. Everything is for Jesus. More of that tomorrow night. But when it comes to work, for most of you, And I want to say for most of you, the most logical sense is to at least explore what it might mean to tell people about Jesus full-time. If there is one group of humanity in the world that should be considering how you can use your life for Jesus full-time, it's got to be you. You heard Seth and Kate up here. 
I think Seth said something along these lines. I'm hearing it secondhand and repeating it to you if you weren't there. Something along the lines of, where are they going to come from? Where are these people going to come from? What, Port Kembla High School? Just out there? Just like that? If you come from Port Kembla High School, I hope it's you. Right? <laughs> but where are they going to come from? You are the most able mobilizers with a passport that can get into most countries in the world. You have had training, and what you've learnt this week is more than many pastors in other parts of the world. Just this week alone. Just ask anybody who's just been to the trip to Fiji, for example. They can tell you how much more we know. If you believe, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. How will that compel you? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love your son. And we pray that in your mercy, you will compel us by your love to be convicted of this truth. And having thought about it, to keep thinking your thoughts after you and feeling your feelings after you. And so live no longer for ourselves but you. And please make it clear to us how that may eventuate for the sake and glory of your Son. Amen. We're going to have reflection time now. <clears throat> let's reflect on the talk, have a look back over your notes. In particular, let's think Christ's love compels us. We've seen the enormity of that love. How will you live your life doing everything for Christ? Have a reflection, and then in a few minutes, Griffin's going to come pray for us.
Let's pray. Dear God, uh, you are so glorious. You are steadfast. You are faithful. We thank you for this privilege we have now to pray um, that you give, have given to us through your spirit who which, which intercedes for us. Um, we pr- thank you, Lord, for your incomprehensible greatness manifested in your trinity. We thank you for the relationship that is so close that we cannot understand. Thank you, Lord, that you so loved us, sinful humans, so much that you sent your son to die for us. But more importantly than that, we ultimately thank you that you loved your son. You loved your son and you want us to glorify him. We pray now that we are compelled by this love to serve you wherever possible. Whether that's in mission, here at uni, or back in our home churches. We pray now for the various mission um, events and people we support uh, that we uh, are so grateful to have. Uh, For SNK, we praise you, Lord, for the safe return um, out of that um, time of uncertainty with the pregnancy and the the cancellation of the visa and the security threat. Uh, We pray now for the new visa. I pray that if it is your will, Lord, um, that we uh, can see SNK go back to the Bomber people. We pray for the Bomber people, Lord. We pray uh, a huge prayer of thanks for the spreading of the, the gospel there. We thank you for the hope that they, um, they have spread into the, that area. We pray now that you could raise up workers from here at Uni Bible Group and f- all around the world for this specific area of um, East Asia and for the bountiful harvest everywhere else. We also pray for you and you. We thank you for the um, great privilege it is to have this, these areas um, shown to us where we can serve. We pray for the 1040 window. We pray that ultimately your name will be glorified everywhere in that window, that there will be a shift in the way we send our missionaries, and ultimately everyone in that window will be able to have the opportunity to hear the gospel. We also thank you, Lord, for Fiji and the numerous university students there that are worshipping just like we do now. We thank you for encouraging, uh, for the encouraging partnership that we have with the people of Fiji. And I pray that we can continue to encourage them as they encourage us. We thank you for the solid teaching that they have there. Uh, We also pray now for Jesus Weeks. I pray um, that as uh, uni starts and we um, come off from hearing um, such important news, we can continue as a university group to proclaim the gospel fearlessly, faithfully, and loudly. Ultimately, we bring all these things humbly before you, Lord. Do as you will. Amen.